You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Peter Beagle has been around as almost as long, about as long, longer than I have, but with considerably more acclaim, uh, quite a great deal of success. And uh, he's kind of, to me, Peter's on his second or third win right now. I believe in the last year you won a Hugo and a Nebula, isn't that correct? Yes. Yes, yeah. which is uh, no small achievement. <laughs> he's, of course, the author of A Fine and Private Place, which is a classic, what, you, uh, what I would call high fantasy. And, of course, The Last Unicorn, which is one of the more beloved, uh, uh, really the most popular fantasies of the day. And um, I don't know what Peter's going to read tonight, but without further ado, I think we should turn it over to him. Now if I could just write theirs, discover fire. (laughs) Well, I'm sure you can do better than that. (laughs) I figure that since I didn't have a fantasy that would fit into the half-hour length, I thought I'd read a nonfiction piece that matters a good deal to me. It's about the writer who affected me probably more than any other and whose friendship mattered a great deal for 20 years. His name is Robert Nathan, and it starts off with a quote of his, One of the most agreeable discussions of realism occurred recently at luncheon. My stepdaughter, aged four, who was eating her spinach, looked up suddenly and remarked in a dreamy voice, I know a little boy who turned into a flower. That, of course, was fantasy. Her brother, aged six, is the realist of the family. He he exclaimed with energy, that's silly. You have to say what he ate that made him turn into a flower. I owe my discovery of Robert Nathan and our 20 years of friendship to the first girl who broke my heart. I was 18 years old and she had long black hair and I was crazy about her and she dumped me for someone else one Pittsburgh winter. I spent most of my free time for months afterward moping at the local Carnegie Library, reading the bleakest, most cynical novels I could find and listening to early Cademan poetry recordings on the turntables upstairs. A very romantic experience it was in many ways. One snowy evening, she came into the library while I was wandering dourly through the fiction stacks. She didn't see me, mainly because I ducked behind a bookshelf and literally crouched there with my broken heart pounding, hoping she'd sense my bleak, cynical presence and afraid she might. I hid my face in the first book I fumbled down from the shelf. It was called The Rancho of the Little Loves by someone I'd never heard of before. Because I can't hold a book, even by way of camouflage, without looking at the words, I started reading. I didn't know this when she left the stacks. The Rancho of the Little Loves isn't a long book, about 200 or so pages. I took it back to my dormitory room, read it that night, returned it to the library the next day, and went straight back to the shelf where I had found it. There were at least 20 other books by the same author with titles like Sir Henry, Portrait of Jenny, The Fiddler in Barley, The Train in the Meadow, There is Another Heaven. I think I took the bishop's wife out next. After I finished that one, I called my parents back in New York City, not even waiting for Sunday's lower rates, to tell them, I know how I want to write. There's this guy named Robert Nathan. 
By the end of the school year, I'd gone straight through that library bookshelf, found other novels in second-hand stores, and was already making a serious effort to write similar stories in the same manner. None of my creative writing class friends knew the books or their author, but Pete Peterson, our teacher, did, and he encouraged me to continue modeling my style on Roberts. You'll learn as much from him as you will from Hemingway, he told me. He keeps it simple, and he doesn't waste paper. I didn't understand that last phrase for quite a while. <laughs> in fact, I didn't really understand the first part either. I had keeping it simple confused with looking simple, and they aren't at all the same thing. The books are uniformly slight. Robert never wrote the sort of novel that can hurt you if you fall asleep reading it. <laughs> Not all of them contain any fantastic elements, and none would be recognized as fantasies by devotees of Terry Brooks or Robert Jordan. There are no elves, trolls, or demons in his work, no monsters, no high kings or dark lords, and only the occasional possible magician. Robert's kingdom, his own Middle Earth, is time. He moves in time with the serene assurance of a dolphin in the sea, and often the sensual playfulness of a dolphin as well. In his best-known novel, Portrait of Jenny, a little girl appears distinctly older each time she comes to the young artist who loves her, explaining that she is hurrying to grow up for him. In the climax of the story, she drowns in a hurricane on her way to him, unless she drowned in that same storm decades earlier. In Robert's kingdom, time offers all kinds of prospects and even hopes, but can never be deceived. In The Elixir, the American narrator traveling to England encounters another young woman, this one playing her guitar at Stonehenge to no audience but the great standing monoliths. She gives her name as Ninian. She looks like a Woodstock-era hippie, but she may also be Nimu, the student and lover of the wizard Merlin, who learned all his secrets and then imprisoned, her in a imprisoned him in a hollow tree or under a stone. Accounts of the event differ. The narrator falls in love with her during the few days they spend together, but has no hope of ever seeing her again after they part. But Ninian, Anne, to the narrator, turns up again to aid his escape when his homeward-bound plane is forced down in the Jordanian desert at night by Palestinian guerrillas. Dressed now as a Red Cross nurse and inexplicably possessed of a small car, she says she drove for Allenby during the Great War, she takes him for tea and shelter with the legendary old man of the mountain, the founding spirit of the assassins. In the deftly understated adventures that follow, they encounter, or maybe they don't, King Richard the Lionhearted and his troubadour Blondel making their way home from the Crusades, as well as Watt Tyler, the 14th century revolutionary, Guy Fawkes and his gunpowder-happy companions, though they talk pointedly like 1960s SDS power to the people types, <laughs> conceivably even Ham Harriet, I'm sorry, conceivably even Hamlet and King Arthur's knights. Then again, maybe not. You're never entirely sure with Robert, but you do wonder always. The narrator loses his Anne in a tempest at sea, finds her again at a contest of beauty at Eleanor of Aquitaine's court of love, from which she is kidnapped by the sheriff of Nottingham rescues her with the aid of King Richard and Robin Hood, and eventually loses her again to Merlin himself. And if all this sounds in my redaction absurdly chaotic, all I can say is that even today I'd give my one remaining eye tooth to have written it. Nobody but Robert could have gotten away with that book. <laughs> it seems to me, Robert wrote once, that I have always wanted to say the same thing in my books, that life is one, that mystery is all around us, that yesterday, today, and tomorrow are all spread out in the pattern of eternity, together. And although, although love may wear many faces in the incomprehensible panorama of time, in the heart that loves, it is always the same. I've said many times, often in public, 
that my first novel, A Fine and Private Place, is a direct and conscious steal from a book Robert wrote six years before I was born. It's called One More Spring, and it deals with a middle-aged antique dealer, Mr. Otkar, who has just lost, lost his shop and everything in it, except for a huge old brass bed, in the Depression, and with Mr. Rosenberg, a young violinist who has a pocket full of fine European reviews, but is playing on street corners in New York City. They, and the bed, set up housekeeping for the winter in a tool shed in Central Park, along with a young woman named Elizabeth, whom the two men gradually realize is feeding them by selling herself. There may, may seem to be no connection between this tale and a novel set in a cemetery, two of whose main characters are ghosts. Robert himself never saw it. But I know the link is there, in the same way that George Lucas wanted to remake Flash Gordon but couldn't get the rights and settled for creating Star Wars. I wrote A Fine and Private Place because Robert had already written One More Spring. That's all. My publisher sent the manuscript to Robert without telling me about it. I didn't find out for years from Robert himself when the writer John D. Weaver introduced us in 1964 in the Beverly Hills restaurant that he had responded graciously, saying that he'd enjoyed the book a good deal and expected to enjoy future novels even more once I gained more confidence in my own style. Later, my early shyness at last gone, I teased him about that, saying, nice way of telling me, shinny in your side, kid, I'm working this corner. But it's turned out true, Robert said. Your writing does get better and better as it moves further away from mine. No other writer, and I've known some truly kindly ones, has ever said anything that generous to me. I came to see him whenever I was in Los Angeles, which was fairly often in those days of easily available movie of the week gigs. Except for Anne's children, he always called his last wife, the English actress Anna Lee, Anne. You're the only person under 50 who ever sets foot in this house, he often told me. His closest friends were older writers like John Weaver, Leonard Wiberly, and Turnley Walker, and people from his screenwriting days at MGM. I remember meeting both of the Irvings, Stone and Wallace, in that living room, as well as the librettist Sig Herzig and the actors Joseph Cotton, Joanne Drew, and Max Showalter. And at the birthday party for the film editor Ruth Ford that Robert and Anne gave every year, I once glimpsed the tall, age-gaunted figure of her father, John Ford, and realized when he rose painfully to go to the bathroom where John Wayne's copyrighted walk had originated. <laughs> but the best friend, I think, was the one who was never there, long-departed Stephen Vincent Benet, who died in 1943 at the age of 45. Robert could only talk about him up to a point of silence as early and abrupt as Benet's own death, but he did tell me something late one night about his own book-length poem, Morning in Iowa. I started writing it not long after Steve, after Steve, without knowing why. It isn't my sort of poetry at all. I never wrote anything like it before or since, but I couldn't stop until it was done. The only thing I can imagine is that somehow Steve possessed me. He wanted me to write it for him. And when it was finished, then he was truly gone. Not until then. But the grief never left. I didn't understand about that for many years. Morning in Iowa is indeed unlike anything else Robert ever did. I have an old tape cassette of him reading parts of it, and even his voice sounds somehow different, the beat slower, the vowels lengthening and flattening into a Midwestern timbre. The poem's general structure is similar to that of Benet's John Brown's body, ranging from strict iambic pentameter to verse very nearly free, Robert never could quite abandon formal rhythm, to the short-lined ballad-like lyrics that Benet favored and that Robert imitated, to be sure, but imitated with his whole heart, as, for instance, a man singing on the deck of a flatboat going up the Mississippi. 
Now, Willie was a man in Alabama who was courting on a girl named Josie Lee. One night, he lost his way across the mountain and ended up in Memphis, Tennessee. He never made to wonder how he got there, but settled by the Mississippi shore. Poor Josie waited for her wandering lover, but Willie never traveled anymore. He never failed to hanker after Josie, never failed to wonder and to fret. Poor Josie up and died in 97, but people say the Willie's living yet. It sort of seems as though he'd gotten parted from what he'd all along been meant to be. He left his heart behind in Alabama. Death never thought to look in Tennessee. The poem concerns a young New England woman named Mary Helda, hitchhiking west with a son to change her life in some way she cannot imagine. There's a truck driver from Kansas named Connor who gives her a lift and drops her off with an Iowa farmer named Anderson who gives her a job. There's a farmhand named Ed Revere who loves her without the words or the voice to tell her so. And at the last, there's Kit Vance, a Colorado cattleman no older than Restless Mary, who falls off that same flatboat in the night and is rescued by Mary. She recognizes him for her own before he's even regained consciousness, and that's the story of Morning in Iowa. But the real story for me, anyway, is about Robert Nathan, a creature very much of the coasts of New England and Southern California, being mysteriously compelled to write of the American interior, the flyover states, as we call them these days, which are so profoundly not his turf, and evoking the land and the peop its people as well as he did. Here's Ed, Mary Hilda's silent suitor. Ed couldn't marry, for he had no money. His home was under the roof of Anderson's barn, or wherever he happened to be, scattering feed to Kansas chickens, or up in Minnesota, helping to plant the wheat or mine a dairy. He had no land of his own to put a house on. He had no house of his own to offer Mary. He was American as mustard seed, but his bed was a wooden floor and a bundle of hay. He gave what he had, the good green gift of his hands, but he had no heart to say what he had to say. And here's old man Vance, who, quote, loved his cattle but missed his wife, writing to his son, who's been the one to take the herd east this year. Kit's father wrote to him from Colorado. I was down to the fork today. The river's dry. A man is here with horses he wants to sell. I got my eye on a mare I aim to buy. Price is right. I don't think I'd be stuck. You coming home? I declare to God I miss you, but still, still on the whole, I'm doing pretty well, though eggs are scarce and the price of corn is high. If it be you get as far as Keokuk, see can you make a deal with Anderson there for two, three tons of fodder to come by truck, with which I close and sign myself, God bless you, your father. It's a rural, small-town America between two wars, an America of other voices besides Benet's, both Frost's deceptive conversationality and Sandberg's sprawling visions come to mind, an America that perhaps never quite existed. No country ever gets his own story right or really wants to. And maybe the poem is no more than a tribute to a lost friend, a loving impersonation. But I'll go with Robert. To me, it's the strongest case for possession I've ever seen. Either way, when you read it aloud to yourself, it sings. When I told Robert that my oldest daughter, Victoria, was staging Juliet in Mantua, his slightly touching sequel to Romeo and Juliet in her high school, he was at once tickled and genuinely astonished. Nobody ever does that one, not a community theater, not even a church group. Tell her I'm absolutely thrilled. I was apologetic and embarrassed. It's only the first act, and just for her own class, for an assignment. I don't care, Robert answered firmly. For me, it's Broadway. He was married a lot. We never talked about that part of his life, so it wasn't until I looked it up just now that I knew for certain whether Anna was number six or number seven. Answer number seven. 
His first five marriages ended in divorce, and the sixth was cut short by disease when feisty, red-haired New England Minnie was diagnosed with one of those cancers that eats you up in a matter of weeks or months from its, from its discovery. Minnie's death very nearly destroyed Robert. He drove wildly up from Los Angeles to see me in Watsonville, and then drove back the next day. I honestly feared that he might die himself. But he didn't die. He went to ground like some hunted, injured animal, and the letters were brief and sporadic for the next couple of years. Then, when I called to say, rather hesitantly, that I was in town for a few days in business, he asked me to come and visit, mentioning, just as shyly, that there was someone he wanted me to meet. At 76, he sounded like a teenage boy bringing his new girlfriend home for the first time. She came scrambling down from the roof of his house where she'd been replacing shingles, a small, blonde, bright-eyed person wearing coveralls and a painter's cap. Nothing in her manner marked her as having already been an actress for almost 40 years, or having starred in such movies as King Solomon's Mines, How Green Was My Valley, Bedlam, The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, Ford Apache, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. She was just Anna, and the first thing I ever heard her say after the introductions was, Robert, I'm absolutely famished. Do we have any leftovers? They shared a birthday, 19 years apart, and actually met at a shared party given for the two of them by a friend. Anna, who, with the possible exception of Christopher Lee, knew more poetry by heart than anyone, turned out always to have loved a sonnet of Robert's called Now Blue October, and recited it often on a radio program she conducted during the war years. It runs as follows. Now blue October, smoky in the sun, must end the long sweet summer of the heart. The last brief visit of the birds is done. They sing the autumn songs before they part. Listen, how lovely. There's the thrush we heard when June was small with roses and the bending blossom of branches, co branches covered nest and bird. Singing the summer in, summer unending. Give me your hand once more before the night. See how the meadows darken with the frost, how fades the green that was the summer's light. Beauty is only altered, never lost. And love before the cold November rain will make it summer in the heart again. Unfortunately, or perhaps not, she had for all that time attributed it to the English poet Rupert, Brick, Rupert Brooke, long dead in a different war. When Robert and I were introduced, I simply panicked like a schoolgirl. I went blank, I gushed, I gibbered. Oh my goodness, you're Rupert Brooke. I deny it today, but there were witnesses. They married just three months afterward and were together until Robert's death 15 years later. Anna once told me that those were the happiest years of her life. I always thought of her as the last Englishwoman of a certain sort, not the colonial Mem Saeb type, but rather a gracious Mrs. Miniver, prepared to defend her home and family against all invaders, with a broken beer bottle, if that was all that came to hand, and then to serve tea in the garden. Even her straight up-and-down handwriting belonged to another era. My third-grade teacher had it, too. Very sensibly, she gradually turned Minnie's Southern California house into what John Weaver called Blenheim West. There was an old Union Jack over the fireplace. She did indeed put out the tea things every day at four, and she usually sang Land of Hope and Glory in the bath. Anna died just recently, as I write, at the exact same age Robert had been when he died, 91, and just 11 days shy of the same date. I miss her as much as I miss him. When I came to lunch one afternoon, full of news about having been interviewed as a possible screenwriter for a, de for a depression-era fantasy by Mildred Cram called Forever, about a pair of lovers who meet in heaven or something like it before their births and spend their lives trying to find each other, Robert burst out laughing. Oh, for God's sake, I was brought out here in 1939 to work on that thing, me and a couple of Hungarians. 
they'll never make it now. They've done too well keeping it on the books all these years as a tax loss. <laughs> he was resentful, deeply so, about the publishing world's increasing neglect of his work, but he always seemed to regard the movie industry with a certain affectionate amusement, despite the deals that fell through at the last minute, the return calls that never came, the remakes that were never to happen in his lifetime. Portrait of Jenny, One More Spring, The Bishop's Wife, and The Enchanted Voyage all became movies. Portrait of Jenny is also been an opera and a musical. But Robert had screenwriter credit only on three released films, The Clock, Pagan Love Song, and a film adaptation of Alice Dewar Miller's poem, The White Cliffs of Dover, which was made into an Irene Dunn Weepy in 1944. The rest of his Hollywood work went unproduced, as was often the case with writers employed by the major studios' story departments. But my contract allowed me to take t six months out of each year to write a book, and I got paid for the whole year just the same. I can't complain. Indeed, the publishers didn't do it all well by him. He had good reasons for his bitterness. The trouble was that he outlived most of the people to whom his work truly mattered. He often said that he felt like a pterodactyl, the last of an all but extinct species stranded in the world and an era where the best it could hope for was to be stuffed and exhibited in the glass case. Alfred A. Knopf, who published his books for 40 years, was gone, and the editor he had when I knew him stopped bothering to send Robert's new novels out to paperback publishers for reprint bids. He was told that this or that insulting advance was the only deal offered, found out that he was being lied to, and left Knopf. What else could he have done in dignity, whether he should have done it or not? Today he might well have found a smaller house that knew how to handle a unique artist with both skill and respect, as it was, the last couple of books were published by Delacourt, who had no more idea than Knopf what to do with them. Everything but Portrait of Jenny was out of print when he died. But even in the good years, he never made a living off the books. Robert came from old New York money. There was a Rabbi Nathan present at George Washington's first inauguration, and he was the first Sephardi I had ever known. The Sephardi were the Latin and Midwestern Jews whose ancestors were expelled from Spain along with the Moors in 1492. It's been said that in that day, the collective Spanish IQ dropped 50 points. <laughs> Speaking their richly musical Ladino, a Hispanicized form of Hebrew, and working often in medicine or the arts, they were the aristocrats of Judaism, no matter how powerless their condition in their adopted countries. The German or English Jews might have more money, might have climbed higher socially, but the Sephardim were always class. I became aware of this when I visited him one, af visited one afternoon to find him looking through a volume of Isaac Bashevis Singer's short stories. He held the book up after greeting me and asked, does he speak to you? He's probably the closest I'm ever going to get to understanding the world my parents came from, I answered. My dad was born in a one-room hut with a mud floor and a miserable Polish shtetl that doesn't exist anymore. He won't ever talk about it, so all I've got is Singer. Robert shook his head sadly. It's such a closed world to me. I remember being six or seven, playing under the table in our apartment, and listening to the grown-ups talking and talking about those people, the ones pouring off the ships at Ellis Island every day, the poor cousins, we called them, illiterate, without Hebrew, let alone Ladino, babbling their awful Yiddish, filling up the Lower East Side with their pushcarts and their smells and their ignorant wonder rabbis from the old country. How could we have imagined that their children would become the writers, the artists, the musicians of the next generation? That was supposed to be us. We were the inheritors. We were the custodians of language. Only it didn't exactly happen like that. He sighed and patted my arm and laughed dryly. Well, your people created a body of work mine surely couldn't have matched. Just as well. Just as well. He did come to like Isaac Bashevis Singer in time. He was a conservative man in many ways, still an FDR Democrat and no cave-dwelling Republican right-winger, 
But as ill at ease in the second half of the 20th century, as you might expect from someone who wrote this sentence in the first half, there is such a thing as too much history, and we're having it. <laughs> I knew him well enough to alert him in advance when I brought the African-American poet, Colleen McElroy, to his house, and I'm still touched and haunted by the earnest anxiety of his, of his response. Boy, if she's your friend, I'll be delighted to meet her. Don't ever worry about that. It's just that I don't know black people anymore if I ever really did. I suppose I'm rather afraid of them now. By the end of the evening, he was reading his own poetry to Colleen and asking for copies of her books. Once he wrote to me, the tone of his letter, not so much annoyance as plain bewilderment, that a young jazz pianist had moved in next door, that he couldn't make any sense out of the man's idea of music. His neighbor turned out to be Herbie Hancock. <laughs> and in time, Robert came to take cautious pleasure in the sounds floating across the lawn at very odd hours. He distrusted change, but he knew how to listen. Music, especially vocal music, was a particular bond between us. Robert was a member of ASCAP, not as a poet or a lyricist, but as a composer, which I envied enormously. He had set the poetry of Walt Whitman and A.E. Hausman, among others, and after his death, Anna gave me a faded copy of a cello sonata dated 1924. For a time, he had actually studied singing with none other than Lottie Lehman. Um, too late, as I took up tennis, as I always take up everything, my one real memory of our lessons is of that great lady peering at me and demanding, Robbie, why do you always look so sad when you sing? But I did hear him sing once. I've never forgotten it. It happened the night before New Year's Eve, 1979. I can't recall why I was in Los Angeles just then, but I called Robert, as I always did, and, as always, shamelessly invited myself to dinner. He was pleased to have me, as long as I didn't mind two other guests being there as well. Friends of Anne's, he explained. They were all nuns together. He didn't elaborate. <laughs> the guests had indeed been nuns with Anna in the film The Sound of Music, but their true religious vocation was singing. One was Marnie Nixon, so well known for dubbing Deborah Carr, The King and I, Natalie Wood, West Side Story, and Audrey Hepburn, My Fair Lady, that she'd become a verb. To dub a singing voice was to Marnie Nixon it. The other was a small white-haired woman named Portia Nelson, and I know I made an utter fool of myself gaping and spluttering at her. Actress, writer, and composer, as well as singer and pianist, she had been the cool, remote, pure-voiced soprano queen of New York City cabaret in the 1950s, holding court in clubs like the Blue Angel, the Bonsoir, and the Village Gate, while performing in the classic musical The Golden Apple and conducting a Sunday radio program. I got thrown out of a lot of places at 15 trying to sneak in to hear Portia Nelson. I remember everything about that evening 28 years ago. I remember Marnie Nixon discussing operatic singing. The trick is to make your whole body into a column of air from the soles of your feet to the roots of your hair and then get out of the way. And vigorously defending the use of body mics in opera. The cliche is that we're all big fat people who can't act. Well, you just try singing 18th century music over 19th century orchestras in a huge 20th century theater while you're still supposed to move, to emote, to engage with other people on the stage. You free us from the burden of projection. You'll see how many of us can act. And I remember talking, Portia talking amiably about the rock and roll revolution of the 1960s that literally wiped out the great cabarets and clubs where she had reigned for years. So I did what everyone else did. I moved to California. She wrote musicals for children, acted a bit, doing soap opera work, and dubbing the voice of the parrot Polynesia in the Rex Harrison Dr. Doolittle, and sang not at all. But it worked out all right. How else would I have met Anna and Marnie? And I remember the deal that was formally struck some time after dinner. 
Anna brought me out a guitar I'd never known she had and asked me to sing a couple of my own songs. I said I'd do it if Portia would sing some of hers, and Portia agreed in turn on condition that Marnie and Robert would do something together. Robert refused categorically at first, but Marnie, who had brought along her accompanist, is a notably determined woman. They wound up singing La Chiderem La Mano from Don Giovanni. Robert's voice, he'd have been 85 at the time, was a sturdy baritone, perfectly on pitch, only wobbling in one or two places where he ran short of breath. Near the end of the duet, without looking at each other, they reached out to join hands, as the Don and the peasant girl Zerlina would have done. I had a little trouble with my own breath at that moment. Looking at Anna, I realized that she had never heard Robert sing before. Her eyes were getting bigger and bigger, and her hands were shaking as she fumbled with the tape recorder she'd been clicking on and off all evening. Today, of course, there'd be a home video of the, ev of the event. Right now, writing this, I wonder whether that recording still exists. I hope one of Anna's children has it, if so. I don't need it myself. I remember. My own short story, Professor Gathersman and the Indian Rhinoceros, is in tone, style, and feeling very much an homage to Robert, but one written so long after his death I didn't realize what I was doing until after I'd done it. Then I went back and added a reference by the rhinoceros to the 14th century philosopher Bernard of Treves. Robert used to quote Bernard of Treves a good deal in his work, often using Bernard's works as epigraphs to his own novels. He was eminently entitled to do so since Bernard was his invention, born of a long-time fascination with medieval thought and scholarship. My allusion was entirely for Anna, and she caught it and laughed and told me, it's the best story that Robert never wrote. It's still the best I've done. His penultimate novel, The Summer Meadows, is a particular favorite of mine. It begins with a poem which digs gentle claws deeper into me as I grow older. Old friend, we have come into the shadowy part of the woods, the gray seventies. The path is rougher and grows narrower. The legs tremble a little, the breath is shorter. We look anxiously about. Creatures of bad intent are here. The path could end suddenly. Behind, in summer meadows, the live, bright figures come and go. They are far away, smaller and smaller, seen for a moment and lost again. Golden, tiny creatures, in and out of the sun, ourselves among them, leaping and darting, dancing in butterfly clusters, singing of love, singing of youth eternal. It was all there once. It is all there still. We go forward into the forest. We can never go back to join them. We can never return there. The book was triggered by the death of Herbert Feist, an American statesman and historian who had been Robert's close friend since college. I remember reading an article about Robert that he wrote for the New York Times Book Review. He's one of the major characters in the novel, along with Bobby, the narrator, and Bobby's wife, Cordelia, Anna to the life. Quote, For she is an Englishwoman who talks to flowers, they bloom under her care and never talk back, which makes it possible for her to express those opinions which I have begged her to hide from our friends. For she is a Victorian at heart and believes in authority, goodness, and Genesis 1 and 2. Mm -hmm. And like so many Victorians, she believes in love, which is a great comfort to me because it's generally held in some contempt these days. I believe in it too, but about Genesis, I am with Dr. Leakey. Mm -hmm. One late evening, Herbie comes to visit Bobby and Cordelia in their house on the California coast, which startles them considerably since earlier that day they had found out he was dying far away in Maine. The three of them go on a journey together, short in distance and duration, perhaps, and perhaps not. All that Bobby can ever, I'm sorry, all that Bobby can ever almost be sure of 
is that there was an old antiquarian journeying himself in a van drawn by, quote, a meek and ancient horse. And there was a clown and a circus as well, and a little girl playing on the beach, and an old watchmaker, not to mention the very strange patrolman. One of them may be God, and one Lucifer, and one death, but which was which? And what of all that happened was real to Bobby, to Cordelia? And was the terrifying storm that pursued the two of them and Herbie the past, the true past, the true history of man? Bobby hears in it, quote, a sound of voices, a wind of cries growing deeper, coming nearer, the clashing of steel and iron, shouts and groans, exultant calls and a great sound of weeping. I heard all the violence of earth, the rising of the waters of hate, the keening of the winds of mischief, the gathering of the tribes, the fall of kings, the dissolution of empires. Much of the book is Robert talking to himself, as I heard him do so often. But all the same, it is a novel, and I read it again whenever I most want to remember him. Brief as it is, only 113 pages, it encapsulates most of Robert's basic themes, each of Robert's basic themes, love, time, memory, change, death, human joys and cruelties, and always the matter of God's relevance or indifference to it all. Did Tolstoy or Dickens or Stendhal deal with anything greater? I think of a very small poem of Robert's called Autobiography. He called his friends elephants, admirals, and other heavy creatures because he himself was like a mouse and his step was light on the earth. The last book, Heaven and Hell and the Magus Factor, appeared in 1975. It's not one of his best, but worths are published and praised every day. He stopped after that and began to die, as happens to artists too weary or angry or discouraged to struggle anymore. He did write a small sheaf of heartbreakingly lovely poems for Anna, composed in the big armchair in the living room, where he spent his days waiting for General Hospital, the soap opera in which she played an important recurring role, to come on, and then for her to return from the studio, quote, homecoming like the tide. But the letters were fewer, and they're no longer, they were no longer crowded with complaints about the undoubted end of his inspiration, which in the past had always meant that he was thinking about the new novel. I tried, like so many other older friends, to coax and provoke him into working again, but it wasn't any good. In the shadowy part of the woods wait other things than books. Once, when he was in unremitting pain from dental surgery, I told him the story about the old lady who was asked how many teeth she had left in her head. In her head. Only two, she replied, but thank God they're hitters. <laughs> Robert laughed fully at that and then said sadly, but mine aren't. He was 91 the last time I saw him, and it was a major effort for him to walk me to the door of the house on North Doheny Drive in Los Angeles, where I'd spent so many long afternoons and evenings over more than 20 years. But he insisted on taking me to the door all the same, because he always had. And as always, he hugged me goodbye. This time, however, he did something he'd never done before. He put his head down on my shoulder just for a moment, and he gave a very small sigh, like a tired child falling asleep in the car on the long ride home and I knew without question that I'd never see him again. He died on May 25th, 1985. I lost my father a few months afterward. It was a bad year. He taught me more than any other writer, mostly without knowing it, and continues to even now, when I pick up a book written 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago, and marvel at the simple miracle of a line or a paragraph, at the unpretentious, almost diffident perfection of an image, an insight, a bit of dialogue. My own work may not resemble his anymore to the casual eye, or even generally to my own, 
but I can still look back over a long-finished story and feel the depth of the debt. If I never turned a page of his writing again, it wouldn't matter. I'd remember. But he also taught me, unintentionally, not to be like him, to guard myself constantly against ending in bitterness over changing public tastes and the neglect of publishers and critics. I know both envy, truly savage envy, and the shame of feeling envious as well as anyone. But it seems to me now that there are worse things than being forgotten, that there is even a kind of freedom in not having to live up to an old reputation or to any expectations at all. I'd like to imagine myself, at Robert's age, embarking on some new artistic adventure without giving a damn whether anyone was watching. An illusion, almost surely, vain, foolish, and highly unlikely, but necessary. Ironically, it wouldn't surprise me if some house were to reissue and properly publicize several of his books at once, that Robert might be, would be dramatically rediscovered, uh, I'm sorry, if Robert would be dramatically rediscovered and celebrated as perhaps he never was before, even in his popular prime. The big bucks, big screen success of sentimental novels, fantasy romances like those of Nicholas Sparks, Barbara Taylor Bradford, Robert James Waller, um, Belva Plain, Danielle Steele, indicate to me a certain hunger for reassurance in a world lately more than usually insane, that sanity is possible, that gentleness is not always brutally punished, nor kindness destroyed, and that love returns. If that hunger is as real as I think it is, why then, this may well be Robert Nathan's time, after all. Because at his worst day, on his worst day, he was an infinitely better writer than any of those infinitely richer and more celebrated people. He wrote once, very long ago, I have tried, as far as I could, to be a comforter in the world, not through what I know, but what I don't and cannot know. On those terms, and surely those are the best of all, he succeeded grandly and succeeds still. I ended with a, a quote of his. I'm not even sure where I got it. Just had something in the letter. Give exceeding thanks for the mystery which remains a mystery still, the veil that hides you from the infinite, which makes it possible to believe in what you can, for you to believe in what you cannot see. Robert Nathan, 1894, 1985. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.